Episode 3, Rites of Passage. This episode is brought to you by rats. Unlike the plague, which, despite popular legend, was actually brought to you by gerbils. By the morning of the 29th of October, 1628, the loading of the Batavia is complete. Her passengers, crew and cargo are all aboard, and she sits moored by the island of Tessel in the Zaldazee. We are waiting for conditions to be just right to begin the expected eight or nine month journey to the East Indies. We are shattered with exhaustion already, having spent the last few weeks loading barrels of water, beer, spirits, food, textiles, spare sails, pigs, chickens, ornate furniture, precious fabrics and wool, cannons, cannonballs, gunpowder, thousands of small bricks, plus 137 huge blocks of sandstone to be used to build a giant portico for the fort at Batavia, the VOC's main trading post in Java, and the city after which this ship has been named. Last but not least, yesterday we had been one of the sailors entrusted to ferry armed guards back and forth between wharf and ship, escorting 12 huge chests filled with silver coins. This was the most valuable cargo by far, equivalent to one-fifth of the capital of the VOC, and all of it had been securely locked in the captain's great cabin on the upper deck. The Batavia is the most valuable ship to have ever set sail from the Low Countries, and the burden of responsibility for her lays on the shoulders of one man. His name is Francisco Pelsart. As the upper culpman, or upper merchant, he is the embodiment of company power on board, but not only on the Batavia, also across the entire fleet of eight ships. A highly experienced merchant, he is a veteran of many years trading in Asia, and he has literally written the book about Indian social life, customs, and trade. Given his reputation, we had expected him to be a proud, powerful, and confident man. This morning, however, we can't help but notice that he keeps shooting dirty looks at the man who is constantly barking out orders and cursing at anyone who fails to immediately spring into action. This man's name is Aryan Jakobson, and he is the captain of the Batavia. As the upper merchant, Pelsart is the man ultimately in charge of the voyage, and in ensuring that the VOC makes a tidy profit from the whole endeavour. It is the captain Jakobson, however, who commands the seafaring, and the day-to-day -day running of this ship. Having two dominant personalities on board one small ship, might lead to tensions under the best of circumstances. According to the rumours we've heard on board, these two are not friends. One of our fellow sailors claimed to have heard Pelsart swear that he would never set foot on the same ship as that disobedient drunk Jakobson again. Perhaps like the rest of us, however, Pelsart is willing to do things he doesn't quite like in order to get a piece of the VOC's riches. Despite whatever bad blood might exist between these two men, even Pelsart must recognise this morning that Skipper Jakobson 
is very good at his job as he commands the sailors to their tasks. As we busily untie some lines, our eyes, like those of every other man on board, are suddenly drawn to a beautiful blonde woman who emerges from her cabin just for a moment to take a quick look at the goings-on. Her name is Lucretia Yarns. She's going out to Asia to join her husband, also a merchant for the VOC in the Indies. A year before, he had gotten her pregnant, but had also gotten himself into huge debt. So he did what most desperate people do, and enrolled with the VOC, leaving her behind in Amsterdam. The baby, just like the couple's other two previous children, had not survived past several months, and so grief-stricken and in mourning, she desperately wants to join her husband in Asia. Our fellow sailors, however, couldn't care less about her inner turmoil, as her outer beauty is enough to distract even the upper merchant and the captain. As Lucretia's blonde hair blows in the wind, her servant, a pleasant-looking, if common, woman in a black dress named Zvancha, ushers her back into the cabin, and soon the work rate on board returns to the usual frenzy. Taking Dutch women out to the Indies is problematic. First, they have to get through nearly a year on a ship with hundreds of blackguards like us, out in the isolation of the open ocean. Once in the Indies, they face the tropical climate, diseases, and violence. At the moment, as we prepare to set sail, Batavia is under siege by a 100,000-man-strong army of the Javanese king, the strongest local ruler around. So it wasn't like some paradise holiday retreat. People hated it out in the Indies, and it shouldn't have come as such a surprise to them, as nobody was expecting coconut oils and mojitos. Desperation, though, can drive a person to do all sorts of things. So despite these issues, the VOC has started allowing more women and families to go to the Indies so that they might start to populate the colonies with, you know, good, wholesome, European Christians. It seems to us that the ship is ready to set sail, but really, what would we know? This is our first time on a ship. Something must be holding us up, though, as the other seven ships in the fleet departed yesterday. We will have to catch them, which we suppose shouldn't be a problem with such a modern machine. From the water, this beast rises up like a floating wooden castle, glistening in the spray and what has been constant rain. It is difficult not to marvel at the authority that our Captain Jakob Zone conveys. The ship is truly his. As he stands at the bridge, surveying the scene, issuing that we climb, coil and tighten the ropes, unfurl the sails, man our stations and be ready. We just await the final order to haul the anchors and set the massive, hulking ship off on her journey. Pelsart is standing behind the captain, and a little to the side. He has total command of the eight-ship fleet, but it was not supposed to be this way. A much higher-ranking VOC officer had originally been in charge of the whole expedition, totaling 18 ships, but he had been called back to Amsterdam. Thus... The decision was made to send eight ships under the command of the next highest-ranking merchant. This is Pelsard. 
Pelsard is very experienced as a merchant for the VOC, having served for years in India. There, his job had been building business connections and relationships with ruling Indian leaders, such as Jahangir, the Mogul Emperor and candidate for wealthiest person on earth at this time. Pelsart had become immersed in Indian culture, marvelling at the exotic tendencies of the subcontinental courts. He is a man who has an appreciation for the variety of life, difference of culture and, more importantly, an appreciation for women. Yep. Despite how tempting it is to imagine him as dour, boring, and unbearable, he's a ladies' man. Let's not forget it. He had dodged a fair few consequences during his time in India as a result of his behaviour. Let's sidetrack for just a moment and recount a story of Pelsart's time on the subcontinent. In Asia, European merchants frequently took local mistresses from amongst the lower and serving classes. Pelsart, he dabbled even a little bit further and started an affair with the wife of one of the leading nobles in Agra. On one occasion, she came back to his house and, perhaps in a festive mood, or possibly trying to numb herself to the burden of hanging out with this guy, she took a large swig of what she thought was wine. It was, in fact, oil of cloves, which is a stimulant properly given only in tiny portions to the sick. She very promptly dropped dead. After witnessing this amazingly committed effort by this woman to not have to spend a night in his bed, Pelsart would have realised that he had a huge problem on his hands. Apparently, he buried the body in the ground of the Dutch colonial base and made a hasty exit from Agra. The noble never did find out what happened to his wife, but apparently a local broker did, and he was happy to accept VOC money in order to keep his mouth shut about it all. So, Pelsart had already had experience in avoiding major repercussions from a very large error in behaviour. Although he had been successful in learning about and engaging with the court at Agra, after nearly a decade Pelsart had not achieved a Dutch trading monopoly with the Mogul. He nonetheless expected a promotion when his current contract expired, but this he did not receive. Angry and disappointed, he made his way back to Holland on board a ship called Dordrecht. The captain on that ship, in his first major command after 10 years running smaller trade ships in Asia, was our captain, Arjen Jakobsson. He is a man with over 30 years experience at sea. In stereotypical seafaring fashion, he'd acquired a large appetite for booze during his time running ships around in the heat of the tropics. During this return trip on the Dordrecht, he'd gotten drunk one night, and basically called Pelsart a wanker. Which, and I might be being unfair here, was probably a fair assessment. This incurred a public scolding of Jakobson the following day, by the head merchant aboard the Dordrecht. Anyone, even a captain, insulting a VOC merchant was just not on. Now, Jakobson had been humiliated on his own ship as punishment. The history and culture of seafaring is ingrained within the lives of those who spend their time at sea. The VOC had changed this structure by putting upper-class, educated merchants, 
with no great affinity or acquaintance with the sea, in positions of authority over hardened captains, used to having things their own way, aboard their own vessels. Surely this was not an incident that either man had forgotten, by the time they were standing together on this ship some 18 months later. We find out there was a delay with loading the cargo onto the Batavia, but everything is now on board. As we are set to a job coiling ropes, we can see Captain Jakobson and Pelsard standing up at the bridge. The two men could not be more contrasted. Jakobson in his basic seaman's clothes, loose shirt, rough home trousers, the same as every other sailor, the only difference being his black tunic, sun-bleached skipper's hat, and scuffed boots. He is animated and authoritative, owning the space around him. Pelsart, on the other hand, is very prim and proper, in a bright red overcoat, like some exotic bird you would see in an Amsterdam back alley market. He stands furtively, almost jealously, like a man who wants to exert power but does not know how. We are fascinated by his big, white, frilly collar and his large feathered hat. The two ornaments give him the appearance of having his head in a clamp. Another man now appears out on the main deck from the great cabin in the aft of the ship. It is the third in command on this ship, the lower merchant for the VOC. He is a man called Geronimus Cornelis Song. Geronimus. We don't know much about him, but he seems like a very friendly person, especially for an upper-class merchant. Some of the sailors have even had a few short conversations with him, which apparently is unusual. Geronimus approaches the captain and Pelsart. He shows Pelsart some papers, and they have a short discussion. Pelsart converses with the captain, and it looks like an agreement is made. A bunch of short orders are barked, and word spreads accordingly. The sails are unfurled, the anchor is raised, and the great ship begins to slowly move towards the mouth of the Zaudersee, out towards the North Sea. And when I say slowly, I mean at three knots, which is like walking speed. We are aiming to go around 15,000 kilometers at an average of five knots. Oh, mate, we didn't realize this was going to be so slow. Did anyone bring a deck of cards? Anyway, although somewhat tedious, the voyage has finally begun. It's fairly smooth going for the first few hours as the ship makes its way out towards the English Channel. It's not a clear day, but totally overcast. We are alone, with the rest of the fleet a day ahead, and the water is choppy. We get told to go to the poop deck to man the port rigging. Looking over at the grey water, the swell is noticeably picking up. It's grey and misty around, and we can't even see the coast, which is not very far away. In fact, the swell is definitely getting choppier by the minute. Rather abruptly, the door to the great cabin swings open, and the upper merchant, Pelsard, the number one person in charge of this fleet, stumbles out onto the deck in his bright red coat. He himself looks green, occasionally holding up his hand to his mouth, definitely trying to keep his stomach in its place. We see him look over to Captain Jakobson, who is standing with his eyes out to the west, 
The wind, which has been blowing at our backs since departing, has definitely changed direction, now coming from the west, and with it, it has brought a host of heavier and darker clouds. We are not experienced seamen, but there are those around us who are. It is clear that a storm is coming quickly. We don't know what to do. The captain issues a command, a frenzy quickly takes over the ship, but people begin to shout things at us from different corners, often in dialects of Dutch and German that we don't really understand. We are not the only inexperienced sailors on board, and the confusion abounds. Several short trumpet blasts, however, manage to convey orders better than any language, and they ring through the chaos, demanding, All hands on deck! More trumpeted orders ring out, which we had learned earlier in our time first aboard the Batavia, and they tell us to hoist the sails, to prevent the strengthening wind from pushing us back to the coast. This we begin to do, as the swell now starts buffeting the Batavia around. Pelsart has quickly run back to his cabin, where he will remain for the duration of this struggle with the elements. Captain Jakobson, however, is in his element, up on the bridge, shouting both practical orders and absolute insults at his men. Using a mix of fear and inspiration, he is rallying us to stand, work, and fight so that the ship can survive what has quickly blown up into a huge storm. Get that cable rope, you sons of whores, or I'll give you a beating that will make you shit your soul, he shouts. And, heave to, I say, take down the top and the mainsails, you scobberyuckin, you bastards. Come on, move like one man. Two hours go by, marked by the dutiful ringing of the bell by the sailor at the till, every half hour. We have been riding out the storm, fighting a battle that we appear to be coming out on top of. But then, in one final burst of intensity, the storm picks up. Despite everything we and our extraordinary captain have done, the Batavia is pushed up onto the Valkyran sandbanks, which line the entrance to the port of Antwerp. At this point, the Batavia is in trouble. Around a fifth of all VOC ships which wreck on the way to the Indies, do so at this point. Luck, however, is on our side. When we hit the sandbank, we do it at low tide. So when the storm abates and the sea level rises, Jakobson is able to successfully refloat her, and we can continue on our way. One of the other ships, and get this one out of your gullet, the Schrafenhacher, wasn't so lucky though. She was so badly damaged by the same storm that she needed to return to harbour for repairs, which would end up taking months to complete. Thanks to Captain Jakobson, however, our ship, the Batavia, is safe, and we have gained our first valuable experience of life on the seas. As we sail on, the sky has cleared, and the sun sets over our right shoulder. Three months in. We've been in the tropics for weeks, and life is not great. After the storm off the coast of Holland, we followed the route out into the Atlantic, down the west coast of Africa, and towards Sierra Leone, where we made an unscheduled and brief stopover. After a couple of weeks in these warm and humid climes, 
The barrels of water on board the ship had turned a vivid green colour as all sorts of life forms took hold inside them. We quickly learned the sailors' trick of drinking water through our teeth so as to filter out the various worms and other nasty things living in the water, which, due to the blistering heat of the tropics, was at near boiling temperature all the time. Despite this unpleasantness, there was barely any of it left. The situation got so desperate that Pelsart made the unusual command to stop in Sierra Leone to pick up fresh supplies. The orders, however, of the Gentleman 17 since 1616 had decreed that no ship was to stop before they reached the Cape of Good Hope. Pelsart had risked the wrath of his employers. Yet, desperation is an even greater master, and eventually his desperation, enhanced by that of everybody on board, forced him to disobey company orders. That first cup of fresh water, after we were stocked, was the best we've ever had. We may be 340 people stuck on this ship together, collectively under the invisible but ever-present thumb of the all-powerful Gentleman 17. But divisions are everywhere. The ship has four decks, and the higher up you are in the power structure, the better your place to sleep on board. The best spots, by far, are the upper decks, where one can enjoy extravagances such as light and fresh air, The biggest and most well-lit room is the Great Cabin, dominated by a massive oak table covered with naval charts, accountancy books, quills, and all the other necessary equipment for the merchants to do their work. Traditionally, this is the captain's quarters, and thus Jakobzon's domain. But Pelsart has decided that, since he's the commander of the whole fleet, he should get to stay here too. And he takes the small space between the room and the steering galley as his own. Captain Jakobson is clearly unhappy being forced to stay so close to him, but the superior officer gets the final say. Lucretia, Zvancher, Geronimus, and the 30 or so other passengers sleep in three very small cabins on the poop deck directly above the great cabin. They might be cramped, but at least they're at the stern. You see, not only are there divisions between the various decks, but every deck itself is divided by the main mast running roughly through the centre between the bow, the front of the ship, and the stern, the back of the ship. Higher ranking or more experienced officers, sailors, and soldiers on each deck get their space aft of the mast, at the stern. Younger, more inexperienced or ostracised members of each group must stay four of the mast, towards the bow. The main reason for this is that the guns and the gunpowder is situated in the aft of the ship, at the very bottom of the hull. It is a gross and punishable offence to be caught behind the main mast, if you are not one of those allocated a spot there for sleeping. Mutiny is authority's biggest fear, and the VOC did not want anybody without due authority having any access at all to the guns and the gunpowder. The front of the ship also gets absolutely pounded during heavy waters and storms, making sleeping there even more difficult than usual. Being on the bottom rung on the sailor ranking ladder, this is where we sleep, and therefore we cop the brunt of it. 
Like all other common sailors, ours is the gun deck, just below the main deck of the ship. We've managed to claim a couple of precious square feet of deck as our own, upon which to lay our horsehair-filled sleeping mat. This, we've wedged between two chests of personal items, one belonging to us, the other to our neighbour, who sleeps in a hammock swinging just above our nose. There are just under 200 sailors down here, between the rigging, benches, and 24 huge cannons. Oh, there is also a galley on our deck, the tiny brick-lined cubicle with about two square metres of space. It is lined with brick because it is the only place where fire is allowed. Our cook, in his tiny space, manages to produce three meals a day for 340 people. That's impressive. The food itself, at the beginning of the voyage anyway, is surprisingly good and at least regular. Fruit and oat in the morning, some kind of sloppy stew for lunch, and the same for dinner. Usually there is dried fish in the stew, known as stockfish, but we get meat every couple of days as well. With every meal we get a beer and every week we receive a decent portion of bread. By the time we get to the tropics, however, everything is absolutely rank. One of the worst jobs by this time is to have to fetch food from the store for the galley, going into the suffocating cauldron that is the belly of the ship. There, the intensity of masses of rotten meat and vegetable weigh upon your soul and cause you to retch. Another trick we had to learn was to tap our bread on a hard surface before eating it, so as to knock the bugs out of it. You bang it down and watch them run for cover amongst the crumbs. You can never get them all out, however, and so weevils, cockroaches and maggots also form a part of our diet. As we eat, we see the captain and merchant's food be taken out and up to their area. There are recognisable pieces of meat on their plates tonight, but not on ours. In fact, there are many evenings during the course of this trip as our provisions become worse and worse, that endless courses of dishes will leave the galley and be taken up to the great cabin. Between our sailors we have two toilets, which are drop holes on either side of the ship, at the very front. There are two more at the very back of the ship, but they're for the exclusive use of the captain and the merchants. This is not an age of toilet paper, and the regular way for sailors to complete their ablutions, once the main business is done, is by means of a rope that hangs off the side of the ship. Attached to the end of the rope is a piece of cloth which is dragged or towed under the water. So we use this tow rag to wipe our bum and then release it back into the water to be made nice and clean for the next bloke. Beautiful. At least we get two of them. You know, between 200 of us. When the weather is really bad and it's too dangerous for us to go outside to use the toilet, we've got no choice but to shit down one of the two hatches which connect our deck with the one below known as the Orlop Deck. I know. Why isn't this one called the Poop Deck? <laughs> the Orlop Deck is not just a viewing platform for descending shit, but is the space built to hold all the spices on the return voyage from the Indies. It was built in a way to maximise drainage, with a floor that curves from the high point at the centre 
down towards the edges. The edges of the deck do not touch the hull of the ship either. There's a small gap to prevent the constant spray of water that covers the ship at all times from getting through and damaging the spices. But it is only on the return voyage that the Orlop can be filled with goods. On the outward journey, which we are on, this deck is filled with people. Poo-dodging people. There are about 80 of them. And they are mercenary soldiers for the VOC, being sent eastwards to fight the wars that the company is allowed to wage in Asia. Remember how Fort Batavia is presently under siege? Well, here come the cavalry. Not literally though, they're not on horses. I shouldn't have said cavalry. Anyway, auxiliary soldiers on their way to Asia. They are an even more ragtag bunch than we sailors, and some of them have even managed to smuggle their wives and children on board, hidden until it was too late to turn back. These soldiers come mainly from Germany, but also Belgium and France, and even England, and they answer directly to the young cadets of the VOC, who are by and large the sons of noble and upper-class civilians. The soldiers have absolutely nothing to do on the ship, except for guarding the massive silver being held in the great cabin. Only two of them do this at once. So at any one time, there are about 78 men, plus the stowaway families, stuck in the body of a great ship on a deck that they can't even stand upright in. It has a height of barely more than a metre, about three or four feet. There are no windows, meaning no fresh air, and they all have to live, eat and sleep down here, in the dark, with nothing to do. They don't even get a toilet. They have to use that small gap between the deck and the hull to do their business. Remember that putrid smell of shit when we were walking around Amsterdam? Yeah, well, this is way, way worse than that. The soldiers are each let out twice a day for 30 minutes. And that is all we see of them. They are not to be trusted, and we are not to talk to them, even if we could. Back in your hole, soldier. The soldiers, with no room to exercise, also get the worst of the food. This results in them being the greatest victims of scurvy. But scurvy is a threat to pretty much everybody on board. Another problem that everyone faces is constant biting from bedbugs and other vermin running around the ship. Being a sailor means accruing constant scrapes, cuts and bruises during the course of normal duty. Very few of these tend to heal and it becomes an issue of managing the infection. When things get really bad, the best option is sometimes for surgeons to remove a limb. A terrifying prospect in a time before painkillers. Further to this, the surgeon is not a trained medical man and more usually serves as the ship's barber. It is never possible to sleep properly, as even if we aren't being thrown around with the swell, it is constantly wet, and now that we are in the tropics, swelteringly hot. We are so bloody itchy that it becomes unbearable on an ever more frequent basis, so that when off-duty, we are just writhing on the floor, reopening scabs for the umpteenth time in our frenzied scratching, trying not to scream in agony, clinging onto silence for the fear of 
the beating that will definitely follow if we do scream. Nobody is enjoying this. And what people cling to is any sense of authority over whomever is below them on the ladder. Which is why you need a friend, or at least a co-sufferer. Someone who can watch your back somewhat, so that you may somewhat watch his. We have entered into this mutual understanding with probably the youngest sailor on board. His name is Jan Pelgrim, and he comes from a town not far from our own. We have been able to relate and, more importantly, speak the same dialect. Jan is pretty small, so he probably needs us more than we need him. From Sierra Leone, we take a westward bearing across the Atlantic towards the New World. As we near the equator, the winds become unpredictable and there are times when we are stuck in the doldrums with very little to do. This leads to utter boredom. When the officers have run out of errands, we entertain ourselves with games and fist fighting. Many of the men will place wages to make it even more interesting, even though we are technically not allowed. We've learned Tic Tac, a Dutch version of backgammon, and have carved some pieces out of wood. We play many hours of Tic Tac with Jan. Bawdy sea songs, theatrical performances, and storytelling is all a part of life on the sea. Somehow, despite all of our misery, we sailors do forge some small sense of unity, being that we are all facing this misery together. We basically try to get as drunk as we can, as often as we can, on what little alcohol the VOC allows us to have. Of course, add to that tedium the natural consequences of having hundreds of men together on board with no outlet for expression. Fights erupt without warning, and there has been one occasion, so far, of a man being stabbed to death by another. The punishment for this is severe. All dead on board a ship are sewn up into a sack, with the last thread going through the dead person's nose. This is done to make sure that they really are dead, assuming that a needle through the nose would result in both a loud scream as well as flowing blood. Once this check has been done, the sack with the body inside is then released into the ocean. When a man is murdered, his killer is sewn into the sack with him and together they are thrown into the watery depths and towards all the terror that this would involve. An attempted murder is punished by having the perpetrator put one of his hands onto the mast or a wooden beam, and there it would be impaled in place with a knife through the back of the hand, whilst having his other hand bound behind him. The only way to get himself free is to pull his hand off the knife, slicing through it and disabling himself in the process. As the sailor is not able to use both hands to work from that point on, his pay is also cut in half. Half the work, half the pay. Minor offences will easily earn a man a lashing, with the Botswain bringing the frayed whip countlessly down on the sailor's back until it looks like bloody pulp. Sexual frustration is part and parcel of being a sailor as well, as is the enforcement of superiority complexes within this hierarchical structure. So, by that, we mean there's rape, 
The punishments are higher for men caught engaging in sodomy, forced or otherwise. But in such confined quarters within a social complex based on varying levels of domination and subordination, we have seen some really messed up stuff. Usually it is the officers who, with their own private quarters, exert their authority towards this purpose. The idea you should be getting from all of this is that it is all just truly awful. We just stick to our little spot at the bow of the gun deck, Jan and us keeping an eye out, protecting each other's backs. Literally. But if it's bad for us, we can't help but feel sorry for the civilian women on board. On top of the general misery of sea life, everywhere they go, hundreds of rapacious and licentious eyes follow them hungrily, especially the high-born lady, Lucretia. Her presence is causing conflict amongst the leading men of the ship, who, despite her already being married, are competing for her affections. Captain Jakobson is foremost amongst the pursuers, but much to his dissatisfaction, she has actually been spending most of her time for the last few weeks in Pelsart's quarters, tending to him through his ongoing and various illnesses. We discover that Captain Jakobson's reputation for the drink is not unfounded. Although dutiful in his hours on deck, once the sun has gone down and he retires to his quarters, much festivity consistently arises from that location. Officers sometimes return after a session with the captain barely able to walk or talk, stumbling around and on, sleeping men, in an effort to find their own patches of space. One night we are summoned to fetch drinks and meals for the captain and his guests. We run up to his cabin and into the largest room on the ship, with its giant oak table. The captain is there, as is Pelsart, Geronimus, and some minor merchants and officers. Lucretia is also there, sitting by the captain but she looks as though she'd rather be anywhere else, as Jakobson leans in closer towards her as he talks, constantly thrusting his hands towards and onto her. Pelsart sits at the other end of the table, and he does not look well. His face is pale, a stark contrast to the sunburn that the rest of us have suffered through from since we arrived in the tropics. One can clearly see the contempt in his eyes as he tries not to glare too obviously at the captain's attempts with Lucretia. Geronimus is engaged in small talk with one of the officers. He is animated in his conversation, but as we look at him, we can tell that he is also casting the odd glance towards Pelsa, the captain, and, when he can, Lucretia. Suddenly, as we are retrieving and opening a new bottle of Geneva, there is a slap We look up to see Lucretia standing, staring down ferociously at the captain. She turns, though, without saying a word, and runs out of the great cabin, back towards her tiny little cabin. There is silence in the room. Then, the captain begins to laugh uproariously, and calls us to pour him another drink. So this we do. We see Pelsart stand up as well now, and retreat back to his quarters. Captain Jakobson watches him leave, takes a squig from his mug, and slams it back onto the table. He looks around him, catching the eye of Geronimus, 
who has paused his conversation to observe these goings-on. Skobiyaka, he says loudly, so that everyone can hear. The hush in the room remains. Remember, he has been punished for drunkenly insulting Pelsart before, but he continues nonetheless, now bringing Lucretia into it. And that woman, that high and mighty princess, is just his whore, believe me. What do you think they're doing right now? Geronimus stares at the captain. We are sure he is about to scold him, but he doesn't. All he says is, doesn't seem fair, does it? And turns back to his conversation. No, the captain shouts, drunkenly. He takes another swig and looks over at the corner. Still standing there is Lucretia's handmaiden, the young and buxom girl named Zvancha. She did not follow her mistress out, but remained to witness the exchange. He gestures for Zvancha to come and sit in his lap, which she does. He puts one arm around her waist and another on her leg. What do you think then, girl? He asks her. Is your mistress his whore? She just giggles and plants a big wet kiss on his weathered face. His spirits are lifted and the tension in the room is suddenly gone. For eight weeks, day by day, we slowly crawl across the Atlantic, heading towards the new world to catch the currents which will propel us back the opposite direction, towards the southern tip of Africa. During this time, Pelsart, our leader, is nowhere to be seen, still suffering from what seems to be malaria and still constantly being attended to by Lucretia. Since that night in the Great Cabin, Svanche has been constantly by Jakob Zoln's side, both when he is overseeing duties on the deck and at night when he is rowdily drinking in the Great Cabin. She's been growing accustomed to the status which comes along with being the captain's mistress, and she's happy to loudly announce to anyone who'll listen that she's not a servant anymore. The captain hasn't been quiet either, but this in his insistence that Lucretia is Pelsart's whore. Every chance he gets, which are many due to the upper merchant's confinement, Jakobson will direct obscenities towards the two, telling anyone nearby of how much Pelsart must be paying her to, inverted commas, look after him. Svancha, who has basically abandoned her master for the master of the ship, will giggle loudly on every occasion, clinging tightly to Jakobson's arm. The captain and Geronimus have also struck up a friendship, and we have heard the lower merchant joining in on playfully teasing the captain about Lucretia and Pelsard. To be fair to Lucretia, she is now so isolated by Jakob Zone and Sancha's relationship that she could just be seeking solidarity in the only place she can find it. What is sure is that her authority over Zvancha has disintegrated with the captain's protection of the servant girl. The tedium continues. Finally, after just over five months, we come into Tafel Bay and moor just past the Cape of Good Hope. We actually reached the harbour at the foot of the Great Table Mountain one month early, but it could not have come sooner for all of us. Here we will get some shore leave, be able to have any ailments tended to more properly, and generally just enjoy not being in the middle of an endless blue expanse of nothingness for vast periods of time. Things are looking up. 
but not for long. During this stay, the tension between Pelsart and Jakobson erupts. The time in harbour is an important one, not only because of the recreational time for everyone aboard, but also for Pelsart to negotiate and acquire new supplies from the local tradesmen. His illness has apparently abated enough for him to do this job, and he sets off into the hinterlands as soon as we anchor. Jakobson, meanwhile, takes Pelsart's absence as an opportunity to go for a pleasure cruise in a small boat, taking Zvancha and Geronimus with him around the harbour, the small party drinking, being merry, and much else, including visiting several of the other ships in the fleet that are also moored in the harbour. It is towards the end of the day, as he sits aboard a ship called Assendelft, that he drinks himself into the phase of violently obnoxious. And then, he goes aboard another ship called the Buren, where he insults and gets in a fight with other sailors and officers. When Pelsart returns from trading for sheep and oxen, he is met with several complaints against the captain. The worst of Jakobson's crimes, as far as Pelsart is concerned, was taking the boat without his express permission. And now, the scene is set. Pelsert summons Jakobson into the great cabin, and just like the year before, he is loudly scolded for his behaviour. Once again, because of the pompous merchant in front of him, this proud captain is being humiliated on his own ship. We see the captain storm out onto the top deck and scream at a fellow sailor that the main mast spare rigging is hanging too loosely. The sailor receives a knock on the back of his head from Jakobson, although he likely had nothing to do with the rigging. It is clear the captain is furious. He spits over the side of the ship and goes back to the bridge. Everyone in there soon find excuses not to be there, except for the poor steersman, of course, manning the till and the hourglass, who must remain, quivering at his post. It turns out that that night is to be our last at the Cape, as repairs have been completed and Pelsart is anxious to resume the voyage. We actually had a great time, getting to spend some time on the beach with the duties like butchering and drying the meat that Pelsart's mission had succeeded in acquiring. In some games last night, we'd won a wooden pipe and a few pinches of fresh tobacco. Smoking on the ship is only allowed during daylight hours, and only forward of the mast. Before the sun goes down, we go to the top deck to enjoy our new possession. But the sun sets quickly here, and soon we are engulfed in darkness. We finish our pipe, and move to head below, but two other figures suddenly appear on the top deck. The hatch from whence they came slams shut behind them. We can only really see their dark shapes in the diminishing light, but one is clearly agitated as he is pacing to and fro. The other man stands calmly, facing his companion. Clearly, neither man knows we are present, and so we remain still and silent. We hear the captain's voice ring out from the pacing man. It is Jakobson. By God, if those ships were not lying there. He lowers his voice, and we cannot hear the next bit. The other man remains silent and calm. But Jakobson cannot contain himself, and raises his voice again as he continues his rant in a gravelly and, dare we say it, inebriated voice. I swear that as soon as I go under sail from here, 
that I soon will be away from the other ships, and then I shall be able to be my own master. The two men must be sure that they are alone, as anyone on deck would have heard this treason in the early evening air. When the other man speaks, we instantly recognize him as Geronimus. It is a voice as calm as the doldrums, and as deadly as the North Sea. But the steersmen also have the watch, good friend, he says, surprising us again that he is not rebuking the captain for this obvious talk of mutiny. Even more surprising, though, is the question that then follows. So, how would you manage that? Exactly how the captain would manage that, we'll have to wait for the next episode of The Unfortunate Voyage of the Batavia. Mutiny is in the air. The top two authorities on board this ship are now pitted against each other, and the man below them, Geronimus Cornelius Son, is going to take his role as puppet master in the whole ordeal. But until then, bon voyage. Thanks for listening to Stuff What You Tell Me. This podcast has been produced by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani. The music you can hear is the song Fork in the Road by the band Detroit Rebellion. Big thanks to them for letting us use it. We'd also like to thank all those who have subscribed, liked, and shared our stuff online, such as Jasper Tonnen. What a superstar. Also a big thanks to those who have donated to us on Patreon, such as Gary Webb. Cheers, Gaz. For detailed show notes with more information, pictures, videos, and links to interesting reading, check out our website at www.stuffwhatyoutellme.com. Feel free to like our Facebook page at facebook.com slash stuffwhatyoutellme and follow us on Twitter at the Stuff You Team. You are also always welcome to support the podcast by following a link to Patreon, which is up on our website. If you thought the podcast was worth a listen, please recommend it to your friends, family, or any other history nerds you know. And if you didn't, well, stuff you.